Well, you're probably like me. You like to get messages from people you haven't heard from in a while. Uh, Facebook has made that rather challenging to get a message from someone you haven't heard from in a while. Or Drew Barrymore uh, in an interview on The Tonight Show. This is on the eve of the release of Facebook. And she's talking about what this will do. And she said, you know, if I haven't talked to you in 20 years, I probably don't want to. So I'm not really sure how this is going to go. But nevertheless, when you see people receive letters and you get those old school things that are archaic, they actually, someone's licked them and they're in flu season, that's a little bit scary, and sealed the envelope and actually fixed an address, mailed it to you, and you haven't heard from them in a while. Or maybe you respect them and you thought, they've probably forgotten about me given what they're doing currently. It's a rare experience. And it's a meaningful experience to do that. It wasn't uncommon six decades into the first century for people to receive mail. They didn't have a mailbox with a flag to put up for outgoing. But they did receive mail from couriers, messengers, people would send around the Roman Empire. And so on this day in a city called Colossae for someone to receive letters, especially letters to a church that would meet in someone's house, that wasn't uncommon. And so what we call now the letter to the Colossians was delivered on that day. But what was fairly unique, not altogether isolated, but unique, was there was a personal letter that came with it, separate from it. It wasn't addressed to the whole of the church that meets in this house. It was addressed to an individual. And the letter didn't come from someone who wasn't respected or someone who wasn't known to the recipients. It came from the Apostle Paul in prison in Rome. And so it was a special occasion to receive this and it was all the more special in all likelihood for Philemon to get a letter addressed to him personally. And so you can almost see the moment of the messenger coming, delivering these letters. One's for the church to hear. The other, ultimately, the church will hear. But not until Philemon has actually read it. And when he opens it up and he looks at it, this is what it says. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, and our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but... I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while 
that you might have him back forever. No longer a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers... I will be graciously given to you. And Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, and Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray together. God, these are all together encouraging and affirming words. Like a drenching of water to a part soul. To hear this level of affirmation from someone respected almost in his own category among the people in Colossae and among his friend, Philemon. And at the same time, Difficult things are said, God. Challenging statements are made. And they're in the same letter. And they're written by the same person. And they have the same motive. Which is that Philemon, along with the church and Colossae, might look to God and see all things and all relationships in light of the person of God as they stand by faith in Christ. God, my prayer is that we would have that orientation, that God, you would, by your spirit, do your work, that we would be able to be real friends with one another. Not in some light or superficial sense, and we won't have all the same level of friendship or closeness, but as brothers and sisters, by union with your son, God, would you grant us sturdy relationships with genuine character that can really, in sacrificially meaningful ways, be a friend to one another. Through affirmation, through challenge, through everything that you will grant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but I find it really easy in friendships and relationships to be affirming. Right? Look for the good thing. Even if there's only one I can find, highlight that, say it, reinforce it. If there's only one, like it gets obnoxious after a little while and people start to ask, do you really like me or are you just bringing up this one thing? It's the only thing you talk about to me, right? But to bring challenge, to confront someone. You've got whole categories, even almost entire generations of people walking around right now that say that's not friendship. If you confront me, if you challenge me, if you ask more of me, that's not a friend. A friend Sticks by you through thick and thin, right? And embedded in that statement is they don't question what you're doing. They don't ask you, do you think this is actually the best thing for us to do? 
They don't try to encourage you to be a better father or mother, sister, brother, girlfriend, boyfriend, son or daughter. Why? Well, because they're a real friend. They just tell me what I'm already doing is the best thing that I could do. And that's not friendship. At the end of the day, that's something your enemy would want for you. Look to your own resources. Go as far as you can go on your own. That doesn't sound like the church. That doesn't sound like the gospel. That doesn't sound like God to me. And so I find it instructive that as we're in the middle of a study through the book of Romans on Sunday morning, that this morning we look at the forgotten letter to Philemon. Right? Paul's letters are ordered from longest to shortest in the New Testament. Romans is the longest and in relative obscurity at the tail end here is Philemon. And it's got some dicey material in it. That's one reason that we shy away from it. But the other is we, we tend to think length of book means it's value in the canon, right? We say this is the canon of Scripture. This is what God's given to us, all 66 books. Well, Philemon's in there. And he's in there for a very direct reason. I think that while the book of Colossians wants us to raise our chin and look upward toward God and say, you know this place is broken, right? And you know that I'm promising to make all things new, a new heaven, a new earth. The assurance from the point of the garden forward is that when I make and create and speak into existence, it is good and very good. When Adam and Eve sin and elect to choose evil rather than good, God doesn't shudder wring his hands or scratch his head. He immediately gives mercy. He immediately offers gospel hope. Yeah, yeah, he's done this thing, but at the end of the day, he will strike out to this seed of woman, and he will try to take hold of him like he's taking hold of you. But at the end of the day, that seed of woman, that man who's coming, he's going to crush the serpent's head. And so the longing and hope is that he would come, and he has come. Jesus took on flesh, dwelt among us, sacrificed himself in the place of all those who would hope in him, and he is alive forevermore. Three days later, miraculously raised from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's the one who will return and make all those things new. Colossians wants us not to forget this cosmic redemption that will happen and see ourselves in light of it. And I am convinced that the book of Philemon in our Bible is intended to say, yes, reconciled to God, God will reconcile all things to himself. Huge, sweeping, grand. Now how in the world do we not kill each other today when we get in an argument? That's what I want to know. I want to know how this cosmic redemption now is going to call me to repentance now. How do I understand how to relate to you as a sister or brother. How do I understand if I'm not believing in Jesus, why this brokenness makes sense as hard as it is, and why the gospel is making sense of the way that we're called to relate to each other in light of it, and not choose evil, but choose good, which is found in Christ. Be a reconciled people to God. Not this false notion of purely reconciled individuals to God. At the end of the day, if we relate to each other or not, that's kind of a fringe benefit, as opposed to this new covenant understanding of who we are. And this, this day is particularly painful in some ways because I've been trying to encourage my brothers in particular to choose good and not evil. But some of them still root for the Patriots tonight. Like I've told them and told them, 
that my Philadelphia Eagles are the virtuous, narrow path, but they choose the path that leads to destruction. I don't understand it. Nevertheless, nevertheless, and here's the deal. Part of that is my own upbringing, all right? So I love movies growing up. I still like them a little too much. For me, the Star Wars universe has informed much of what I think, how I feel, how I react, because I grew up with the initial movies, right? And so I... Just remember this tonight when you watch the Super Bowl with your friends. I hope you have some friends and you do that. Brady and Belichick, there are always two Sith Lords. No more, no less. I'm just saying there's always two. There's always two. All right? So I think it just bears in mind noting that. But I will tell you, other, other movies for me in the 80s that I grew up with, because, yeah, that's how old I am, I, that I think about, that they wanted to explicitly say this is what friendship did. Right? And I think about Red Dawn. It's hard being brothers. I think about young guns. It's hard being pals or friends. Well, it's really hard being both of those things, right? It's really hard knowing that by the virtue of Jesus' work, we are brothers and sisters. And we do have hope in this new heaven, this new earth, this restored place with God. And we long for his appearing. But we need to live in light of that now. And friendship... We should be able to express that if anyone can. Because misgivings about lack of trust, indifference toward one another and our well-being, like all that has been put away from us by hope in Jesus. And so the question in this letter is can we understand reconciliation to one another? How to actually be for one another in friendship and brotherhood and sisterhood? And can we understand not only what Paul has said, but I think how he says it it's really instructive if we're going to be for one another in relationships. And so I, he does a number of things. But I think two in particular that I've already prayed in light of, I've mentioned to you, are this. If you want to be a friend to one another, if you want to not ask questions about whether brotherhood and sisterhood in this new covenant community actually makes a difference, then I think we have to be willing to both affirm one another in light of God's grace and challenge one another in light of God's grace. And there are a bunch of subheadings underneath that. But I think we have to at least be willing to do that. And if we're honest, most of us are really good at one or the other. Affirmation as to what we see that's redemptive and good and noble. And we want to point that out. Or just in your face, push you up against the wall. This is the way it is. Get your tail in gear. As my dad liked to say to me many times. And I needed to have said to me. But where does that marriage happen of the two? How do you affirm each other and challenge each other? And I think that's what Paul does. If you look initially at verses 4 through 7, Paul really is outlining who he's addressing the letter to. And he is going to talk about, in particular, this idea that he and Philemon are friends. And also, too, that there ought to be a different notion about how he sees Onesimus. But he starts out with verses 4 and 5. And affirmation looks like gratitude, honestly. Gratitude for the Lord as to who Philemon is. Now, we don't always start here, but he does. And it's interesting why he says what he says. Keep in mind, they haven't been around each other. It's not like he's observed this. What does he say? He says, I've received good reports of who you are as the church is meeting in your house and you're laboring and serving among them. Do you know what he's going off of? The opposite of gossip. He actually has some friends around him, and more deeply than that are brothers and sisters. 
And as Paul's receiving news in this Roman imprisonment, what does he hear? Philemon's being faithful. When he asks questions about what are you most encouraged by, why Philemon has, has served the church. He's so generous. He's hospitable to us. He doesn't hear, well, if you were there, you know what? Philemon would actually get his act together. There are some ways in which it's strained and there's tension. There's probably all that going on. It's reality, right? Philemon's not perfect. But what are they making an exercise of as exhibited here? Not dressing up sins as if they're virtues, but noting the grace of God in one another. And they're reporting that to Paul. And Paul's saying that that's something to celebrate. I want to affirm that in you. I think how we talk about each other around each other and how we relatively excuse some conversations, maybe in private settings or a community group or wherever you may find yourself, it does influence the way we think about each other. It does. The way we regard one another, report on one another, influences our brothers and sisters. And it matters that we speak well not in concocting things that aren't true, but actively and deliberately looking for evidences of the gospel in each other's lives and affirming it. And affirming it even when the person's absent. It's not bad to talk about people when they're absent. It's bad to talk poorly about people when they're absent. And we conflated those two for some reason. Probably because we got enough going on trying to raise our kids and just get enough sleep at night, right? So we... We don't always think through everything we're doing or failing to do that might actually be a means by which the Lord's pushing us to hope in the gospel. It's interesting that when he gets excited about what happens there, it does demonstrate, I think, some of what's going on in Colossians chapter 2. Now, we can't go through all this right now because I don't have time and you don't either. Colossians 2, 1 through 8, when you have time later today, which I know we'll all do before the kickoff, go back and read Colossians 2, 1 through 8. The beauty there is this, that if we do still tend to think, you know what, I'd like to influence other people to be reconciled to one another. I'd like for them to actually repent and hope in the gospel. I'd like for strained relationships to be mended. That's some of what Paul's working for. I'd like to do all that, but at the end of the day, this relationship with Jesus, this is really about me and Jesus. Because if I'm going to know him more, I can't get distracted by people. And circumstances and things. And if I do, they are only a distraction to my growing in Christ-likeness. Colossians 2 tells us, you want to grow in your understanding of the mystery of God and the gospel? Do you know how that happens? It happens optimally in lives that are knitted together in love with other brothers and sisters. It explicitly says that. So the idea that you and I will grow best if we stay away from community settings We'll grow best if we just don't let our calendar get filled up with people who aren't as far along the road or we think they're not as far down the road as we are. Or people that, man, they're really needy, right? And they don't have time for that because I'm busy trying to build a career. If we fall into that notion, it will affect your growth, but it will have a counterproductive effect, not a beneficial result. And I think that Paul has in mind, because he's produced both of these writings, you know what, it's important that Philemon understand what I'm saying in Colossians 2. I think it's important that he understand that there, there is a breaking, there's a fracturing between him and someone else. And so I, I, I need to stand in the gap and say, can we call out to Christ? Can, can we return to him? 
And I, I love you enough to say we've got to do that. But right now, he's, he's trying to note evidences of grace. And so it's interesting that he starts there, and then he completes his thought this way. That the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing. Very similar to Colossians 2. Why? Because I've derived much joy and comfort from your love. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. By sharing of faith, he could mean evangelism. He could mean generosity, the way he's sharing his faith through evangelism and generosity. He could just mean fellowship with people. I think in light of what he's saying in the letter, part of what Paul means is you and I share this faith through the sharing of your faith, and the sharing of your faith that's common in this new covenant community with your brothers and sisters, like, there's a refreshing that happens. Like, don't forget that we are bound to one another in gospel fidelity. This isn't a private venture. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place, individually, but to make us a people reconciled to him. And if we would grow and be nurtured, he is working in us to make us recognize that. And some of us have forgotten, and some of us are actively thinking about it, and that, that's life too. That's why we have to be an agent toward that thinking among one another. In settings where we are with one another is one of the best places to do that. So that's why community life is not a program for the sake of itself. It, it is a means by which we can be involved with one another, labor among each other. I think part of what we could take out of that, if we want to affirm each other through recognizing what's there, I, I think we got to share with each other quite deliberately what is the Lord doing in me, yes? But we got to come right out and say, this is a clear evidence in you that the Lord's at work. Because you don't see everything that he's doing that I might see. And the same thing is true moving in the other direction. Part of what we have to do is recognize that. Now, some of you get a little itchy there and you go, that sounds man-centered. Are we really, really going to start saying, hey, you do this well. And you, is this everybody gets a trophy, gold star on the chest? Like, I don't like the participant trophy, so I want to stay away from that. No, 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 no. One of the favorite and cherished verses of those who tend to make the argument that if you look at what is evident in someone's life, you are becoming man-centered. If you speak to it, they will actually quote Psalm 16, 11. See, where our whole belonging and our affection needs to be, our consideration is at the right hand of God, where Jesus is seated, because there are pleasures forevermore. Amen and amen. What did the psalmist say in the middle of the psalm? Among your saints, where all my delight is found. They're, they're not in conflict with each other. I would actually say you are being man-centered. If you see evidence of God's grace in your brothers and sisters... And you don't affirm it at a minimum in your prayer for them or in your acknowledgement to God. But I would say go further. Say it out loud. That this is what I see evident in you. Not in a pandering way. You're not trying to pump them up, isolated away from God. You're trying to say there's evidence of the work of the Spirit because of the truth of the gospel in you. And here's an example of it. I want to encourage you in that, sister, brother. Friend, I want you to recognize that because I recognize it. I'm so grateful that the Lord would work in that way and that he would give me the ability to see it and to say it to you. He's not pandering to him. 
He's trying to point to, this is evidence that's seen and even others are talking about. But there's also prayer. If you look in verse 6, and he talks about in verse 4 also, for Paul, thanksgiving and intercessory prayer, like two sides of the same coin for him. This is a habit in his letters. Yes, I am praying for you. This is how I am praying for you. Pastor Joshua read earlier, in particular, one of these depictions in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, there is this statement of how Paul is praying for them. Now, many times we think, well, prayer is lax, prayer is passive. I don't think I'm doing anything when I'm praying. And Bunyan's words need to ring in our ears at that point and say, well, you, you can do more than pray after you pray, but you can't do more than pray until you pray. Right? You, can't, you can't do more than pray until you actually long for the Lord. I think it's interesting, even the leadership seminar this morning, Pastor Gary was teaching such a great session, and he mentioned, right, what are the primary aspects of what's happening in Acts 6 that the apostles need to devote themselves to? You know what I hear all the time on seminary campus, nonetheless? Ministry of the Word, brother. Pastors are about ministry of the Word. Yes, there's, an, there's something else they were doing, too. I mean, it's 50% of what's said there. Do you recall what it was? And to prayer. For Paul, prayer wasn't something he hemmed and hawed about and looked at the floor and said, yeah, I haven't prayed in like three weeks. And if he did, he would find that devastating to his soul by his own example in his writings. For him, the pleading with God to be with, to nurture, to grow up, to call to faith people, that was the work of ministry. And that is the work of being brothers and sisters, is to pray for each other. And how it happens, how frequently, what it looks like, do you pray together, do you pray alone? Yeah, you're probably a little bit of all of that, right? But nevertheless, it's not something that's an afterthought or a luxury item. Prayer is the life's blood to what it means to not only recognize evidence of grace in one another, but continue to long for the Lord to work in those ways, right? To continue to say, Lord, would you provide what's there? Like Colossians 1, what, what do we want to have for each other? We want to be filled with the knowledge of God so that it would walk worthy. So just to use that as an example prayer for Paul, verse 10, that means there's fruitfulness in their life. There's fruit of the gospel that's there. Colossians 1.10 again, increasing knowledge. Right? That they'll grow up in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, that they would be strengthened, that they might endure. Because they're going to suffer and endure hardship. Would they be strengthened? And then he gives thanks. And so he intercedes and he gives thanks again and again. I think we've got to acknowledge evidences of grace. And we've got, we've got to speak to that. We've got to say that. we also got to actively pray for each other. And if you want to look at some of the prayers of Paul, those are great instructive templates to follow. This is how I could pray for you. This is how you pray for me. All right, if we're going to actually devote ourselves to one another in faith and in solidarity. And thirdly, I would say part of affirmation is taking joy in each other. And this might be the most difficult to do. I mentioned Psalm 16 and the dynamic of the psalmist example. I think it's really helpful. I, I take joy in the Lord chiefly. And because the Lord has reconciled a people to himself, I take joy in them because we're worshiping God and finding joy there. Like all that's true and real. But I, I don't know if you noticed in what we read, like ah, this is where you've got to swallow hard and say, I care the most about God and the gospel. 
not my own reputation and prominence, because he says something profound to Philemon. Because I hear that the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you. Not by me, Paul, right? And I guarantee you, because Paul was a man with a pulse, he wanted it to be about him in weak moments. Maybe that's my own confession. Like, I want people to look at me, recognize me, commend me for whatever's going on. And I want that. Not so much in the vein of what I think Paul is doing, but in a very self-idolatrous way many times. And if someone else is the instrument by which God would gain glory and adoration, man, I want to say it, but things like this come out of my mouth. Man, I love that book. He says some great things. I mean, I don't agree with all of it, right? Because nobody's right all the time. No kidding, Sherlock, right? I mean, I, we know that. We all understand that, but that, that's my way in a weak moment of saying something that's true, but when my motivations are poor by just undercutting a little bit. As if significant writers, preachers, men who are just faithful to their families because of the gospel's work, and they'll never be someone you would recognize. And you have people like that in your life. If they've impacted me and someone else says... Man, they've impacted me too. Why wouldn't I just celebrate that as an evidence of God's grace? Why did I have to tie it to me? Or think I had something to do with that? Because I didn't, right? I didn't have anything to do with that. The Lord did that many times in spite of me. Paul is sincerely saying, this is evidence of the Lord's working in you. And by virtue of you, other people are following Jesus. And I'm celebrating that, and it genuinely, not through gritted teeth, but genuinely gives me joy. Like, I'm just as excited, if not more so, that that's happening through your ministry, through your life, which is an example of God's redemption and hope, because he's brought you to faith. And he's encouraging others to persevere in faith through you. Again, saying that, praying in light of that, and then expressing that joy, I think are all ways of affirming what's there. But if we're not careful, here's how we read it, because we're getting ready to shift, right? He's affirmed him, and he'll continue to do that on some level. But he's getting ready to bring in the other dimension I talked about, and that's challenge. So he's affirmed really well. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I could have just stopped there, and probably should, but I'm not going to. But nevertheless, I read that and go, man, I don't, I don't do that. I, I don't affirm people in that gospel-oriented way as often as I should by a long shot. Right? So that would be enough to look at that. But because of the deep and severe challenge he's about to bring for the sake of Philemon, you can almost get this notion, right? Like affirmation is, you're doing a great job, Philemon. Just look at this thumb I got raised, okay? Keep looking at it. Keep looking at it because I'm about to knock you to the ground, right? And you hear people talk this way. Right? A lot of common literature and how you get people to come over to your side or see your viewpoint. Leadership literature is probably the worst casualty of it. What do you do? Well, pander to them. They don't use that word. That's what it means. Right? Soften it up. Soften, 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 like body blows. Right? And then you knock them out when you're in the cage with them. And the whole idea is, is Paul just softening him? Is he just saying, you'll be more receptive if I concoct all these things? Well, no, because he's tied it to the response of the body toward him. This is an isolated notion. This is evidence that we can all see. And we're commending that. And I legitimately want to affirm you in that because these things are real and true. And without them, I don't have any hope to challenge you. 
Why do we know that? Because the word he chooses to use. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough to command you. According to what? According to God and his wisdom and mercy who's made all this stuff evident in you. Like, if I wasn't convinced that God was at work, if I wasn't convinced that you were my brother or my sister, if I wasn't convinced that there are evidences of the Lord, and at the end of the day, I, I pray they're there and they're just dormant or masked or in some weird way I can't see it, but I'm not very hopeful when I have to come and say hard things to you or when you have to come and say hard things to me. But according to God's gospel and the evidence of it in you, according to that, I appeal to you, he said. And he makes the point to say, I'm not going to command you to do this. Now, that's interesting, because when you think about the commands of the Lord, they're to be followed, right? Some of you have a pretty severe prophetic edge like I do. I don't mean telling the future. I mean telling it like it is. I hate that phrase, right? Because most of the time, you're just excusing sinful stuff that comes out of your mouth, but being direct. If the Lord has said this, we must be obedient to it. Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. So is Paul growing a little soft here? I mean, if anybody issues commandments, it's Paul. Now, Paul is laying down the commandments of the Lord. He's making it very clear, and you'll see that here. This is what God's calling on us to do as his people. But because I see his mercy, his grace, not only in your own life, but I, I hear it, and it's in other people speaking, like, in accord with that, I would appeal to you to continue to respond. And fidelity, like this situation is no different than the others. But I fear that you put it in a different category. Maybe you think this doesn't warrant the same attention or the same responsiveness. And so here's how I think he does it. These are ways to get at it. Verse 8 through 11, I think he displays this idea of confidence. I, I just read part of this again to you because this, this is a core of what he's going to say. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. So it's not, it is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus. Which, by the way, he is kind of laying it on there. Do you get that? Like, I, he says old man, and you and I here in our culture, well, you don't need to be listened to. You need to be in assisted living. Like, you definitely need to be listened to. It had quite the opposite effect when he wrote it. So I'm an apostle. Kind of all know that, right? So I'm an apostle. We got that out of the way. But don't forget, I, I am an old man. And there's wisdom that you should attach, specifically because of my apostolic authority. And then on top of that, can you hear my chains rattling? Like, I'm not making this up. I'm not a weekend warrior. Like, I'm sitting in prison right now for the sake of the gospel. So when I'm appealing to you to believe in Christ and trust in his work, for this hard thing I'm about to ask of you, it's not like I don't have the most skin in the game at this point compared to you. So given all that, I could just say, do this. And you probably would do it. But he's going to say later, I don't want you to do it out of compulsion. And sometimes we have to just tell people, do this. But in this particular instance, he's taking up this notion of partnership and he's pleading with him, appealing to him to do it. He actually mentions what he's asking. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful 
to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. Sending my very heart. He could have kept him. He says that to him. So who is Onesimus? So here's where the drama heightens if we could watch this play out. If he was there, Onesimus could have been the courier that delivered the letters. And Onesimus is a guy who got fearful or didn't like the arrangement of this indentured sense, slavery. He shouldn't like that arrangement, and so he fled. He flees to Rome, where he ends up interacting with Paul, and Paul does what Paul does, which is declare the greatness and majesty of Jesus. And God grants faith to Onesimus, and he hopes in Christ. And so now, this man whose name means useful, but he's a Phrygian slave, and they were notorious for being useless, right? You might have them, you might have them bound in this relationship, but they, they don't do a lot of work, so you've got to have a lot of them. And that's steeped with notions of ethnic superiority and racism and all kinds of evil. And so the reason that I mentioned that it's a little bit hard some of this material we stay away from Philemon is mostly because of this. He was a slave to you. Now because of God's care, he's become a brother. Is Paul trying to tell him in particular, and what he goes on to say, slavery's wrong, stop having slaves. I think Paul means for him to understand that. But he doesn't mean for him to understand that just because slavery is inherently evil and diminutive and fails to recognize the glorious image of God among humanity and dignity. But all the more, Paul is trying to help him understand that when the image of God is being restored in someone because they believe in Jesus, like those are your brothers and sisters. And that is the first relationship you think about. And once you are one of those, you think about that relationship as it relates to every other human being on the face of the planet, and you should treat them with dignity and respect. And slavery will never do that. It will degrade and misuse. And at worst, it will cut off the life of people. That's why it has never been good or okay for whatever economic benefit may have been derived. And I say that as an heir to the Confederacy. Almost all of my people on my dad's side of the family fought for the Confederacy. I say that being from the city where the initial secession papers were signed in First Baptist Church of Columbia in Boyce Chapel, by the way, named after David Boyce. Slavery is evil, and there's no dialogue or debate around that, period. Paul is, at least in part, bringing that to Philemon's attention, but he's doing it in a way that's not simply saying, if we fix that, we'll fix everything. No, 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 no. He's digging much deeper into the marrow of the gospel and saying, the reason that this is wrong for you to think about him in this way is because God himself has reframed our thinking and feeling. And so I'm appealing to that in you because I see evidence of it and I'm praying that way and I'm recognizing the joy I take in you. And here's the deal, I'm confident enough to appeal to you because I see all of that occurring and I know the truth that is the gospel there. And so he expresses this concern for Onesimus. Now he mentions in 13 and 14 he could have kept him. And legally he could have. So he comes Paul takes on the care of Onesimus, and legally in the Roman Empire, he could have kept him with him. He didn't have to ask Philemon for anything. 
But you notice that he makes the point to say, I don't want you to do this out of compulsion. I want you to do it because you want to do it. And I could have kept him with me, but I want you to have this opportunity to see the gospel work itself out. What does he mean by that? Well, first of all, if he's a real friend of Philemon, because of their brotherhood, he's got to recognize at least three ways in which this would create hardship. These are quick notes, all right? First of all, it's a breach of trust. Now, here's the deal. Onesimus has come to faith in Jesus. I know if he goes back to Philemon, Philemon may not be happy with him, all right? He may make his labor far more severe than it was before. He may rewrite the contract because now he's violated it. And he may never see freedom. So because of that and because now I have become a father to him spiritually, I don't want to send him back to that. But notice something. He recognized that's a breach of trust with Philemon. And he's my friend. So even though he doesn't like the dynamics of all that, he recognizes what's right and appropriate there. But beyond that, I, I will say this. If all of these people are looking at Philemon, and they've all said the sharing of his faith has encouraged us so much, refreshed our hearts. And here's someone who wasn't a brother, and he is now. And whether Philemon knowingly or doesn't know at this point is being confronted with it, harbors ill will, he doesn't want the best for him, do you think that's going to help the church or hurt the church? If they're all looking to him and taking their cues from him, isn't there a concern over the church, the community on the whole, and honestly, the larger community in which the church is situated? Isn't there concern there that needs to be undertaken? I think Paul does do that. But even if we look individually at Philemon, I, I think pretty saturating in this paragraph is this idea that you, you won't grow and wrestle and struggle and find the truth that I'm even now proclaiming to you if you don't fight this battle and walk through this hard ground. Like Philemon, you got to do that. It, this is a benefit to you, even though it seems hard. So I send him back in part to trust the Lord in this appeal that that would actually happen. Now the interesting thing is when he gets to 15 and 16, he not only shows confidence, but he shows some pretty deep conviction. And just so that you know, he's not simply being sappy, that he is trying to stand on firm biblical theological footing, even as this is unfolding. Here's what he says to him. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord, Paul has firmly in his thinking and his responding that God and his providence gives us opportunity. He has a much more Puritan notion. All right? Puritans did bad things, they did good things. I'm not talking about good outweighs bad, but there's a lot I learned from them. I don't wear powdered wigs any longer, but, but I do learn other stuff. right? And so one thing I think is immensely helpful is their notion of commonplace providence. Right? I have a hangnail right now. I mean, there's actually this written down, okay? I'm going to bore you with the details. I have a hangnail right now. What is the Lord doing in the hangnail? And you might think that that's foolish, and it's a little funny. I mean, I laughed at it the first time I read it. But what is God doing in my child's illness? What is God doing in that the milkman's late, and I don't know what to give the baby right now? As the generations have unfolded, there are people that have held on to this deeply rich biblical idea 
That even when it's hard and it causes suffering, that in the midst of it, God is providing this for what? To conform us further to the image of his son. He is doing this for a reason. That's just the play Paul is running all the time. So he looks at Philemon's situation and his appeal to him, and he says, I don't know that he hasn't been delivered back to you so that you might recognize that you now have a brother, not a slave. You have someone who's been adopted together with God. And that's the next piece. In verse 16, he really does talk about you know, if he remains with Paul or if he goes to Philemon, what, what are you receiving back, Philemon? Well, I'm a brother. Now, I've been adopted by the blood of Christ. He's been adopted by the blood of Christ, and that relationship supersedes everything else. And Paul's recognizing that deep, rich truth to say, we've got to live in light of that, man. It's not enough to carve out something in your systematic theology and say that's true. Is it true? Is it lived in us, is God producing that by His Spirit's work? And then finally, I do think that he points to human relationship and union with Christ. Right? He talks about Onesimus now is doubly connected to you. Right? You know him, you know who I'm talking about, you're probably even mad right now that I'm talking to you about this this way, Philemon, but here's the deal. Yes, he's connected with you in this providential relationship, and now by adoption, he's your brother in Christ. Man, that's got to change the way you view him you got to be for him the way you are for me. And this is probably the hardest texture in the letter. He's not just saying, Philemon, do this for your good. He, he's saying, do it because I'm, I'm trying to bring you together. That his ministry of reconciliation is pleading with people to be reconciled to God. But it also is helping people know that we are reconciled to God as a people. All right, so the example I think he gives is, I think he's asking Philemon to forgive that's not necessarily explicit in all places, but I think that's what he's asking of them. And here's why I mention that. He bases what he's saying on their ministry partnership, verse 17. Right? He bases that on the fact that we're all debtors. We all need Christ's work. So, so if you're a debtor and you required mercy to see your debt resolved by the work of Christ, then are you really superior to someone just because they had an employment relationship or an indentured relationship to you? No, you're not superior. But beyond that, I think he goes on to say, essentially, you, you've got to ask and expect in these situations that the one you're asking to forgive someone else, they, they will exhibit grace because you've already based it on what you found in them. Again, this isn't formulaic, but I think it's important to think that through. And just as a note, if, if you are trying to work as an agent to reconcile, see people come together. Know that Paul doesn't just say, I'm willing to do whatever it takes, and I've, I've kind of already done that. I wrote this letter. All right, so figure it out. Here it is. I played with you. I love you. I've said that's my motive in doing it. Fellow worker, partner, like make this happen. Right. He, he doesn't simply say that. Remember what he says at the end of the letter. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more then I say, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Philemon, I have utmost trust in the Lord, and I also see that I've already stepped in the middle of this mess that I hope is undone as a mess. So here's the deal. I know I'm in prison right now. I trust that the Lord will work in you to do this, and I'm going to come and visit just to make sure. Right, because, I mean, here's the deal. You can, you can throw the picture of you and Onesimus 
that holiday world, kicking it on the roller coaster. Like, you can do that for a brief time. But when I come to visit, I don't do a flyby. When I come to visit this time, I intend to have a sustained visit with you. And these people that I've heard good reports from, my prayer is that the good reports would continue. Not because it's on your back to do it, Philemon, but because I'm trusting the Lord to work in this. In part, I think what he's bringing up is a little bit owing to Matthew 18 and the notion of what Peter asked, right? Lord, so how many times I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? That's 70 times seven, Peter. You continue to forgive. And that's when he tells the parable of the unmerciful tenant, right? So this servant, this man has elected to not show mercy even though he's been shown mercy. So you can read that one too this afternoon if you get a chance. A lot of times we get to the end of these letters and we go, there's a lot of names and they're really hard to say. So I think I'm done reading right now, right? I mean, I got the gist of it, right? We've all written compositions in school. Like the body's what matters. The conclusion, you're just kind of putting a bow on it, right? I don't need to worry about that. That is profoundly wrong. Like Paul doesn't just throw them in here. It's the people you know, right? That is a function of it. Here's some people you know. But real quickly, I, I just want you to see that these are examples of God's forgiveness, of reconciliation to himself. And there are some non-examples of reconciliation to one another, really hard, difficult ones, and some great and glowing examples and notes of reconciliation that can happen by exactly what he's outlining here. And so when he talks about Epaphras, and you'll notice his name appeared when we read Colossians 1. Well, he's... He's the pastor of the church in Colossae at that point. He had been until his imprisonment, and he'll return to be there. He's in prison with Paul in Rome. He's going to be later martyred. Aristarchus eventually was a pastor in Syria. I'm pretty certain that he was martyred there, being faithful to the gospel. Luke, Colossians 4, tells us that he is a physician. He wrote Luke Acts, and he's one that certainly understood reconciliation and his acknowledgement before the Lord. Paul's martyred after this, perhaps an additional Roman imprisonment, but that happens. We know that story. You remember Acts 15? What happens with Mark and Barnabas? Well, they part ways on John Mark. Why? Because apparently, based on Paul's second letter to Timothy, he wasn't useful to the same word. But now, bring Mark to me. He is useful. Not in a utilitarian way, but he sees that. I'm pretty wrong about what Mark means for the sake of service in the gospel. So there's a reconciliation that happens there. And then Demas is the haunting one I mentioned. Also 2 Timothy 4. So Paul clearly has pled with him because he's embedded in a list of people that Paul loves and serving. And Demas has left me here. I mean, he deserted me. You think AWOL is bad? We tend to get really up in arms about that from a military standpoint. How about desertion of Christ in the gospel? How about walking away from the faith? Paul says he, he loved the world. He loved the world and has left me here. So what becomes of Philemon and Onesimus? Well, again, you can kind of feel the friction and tension of this when this letter's read in the church if Philemon chose not to be responsive to it, right? I mean, how many Sundays can you do that, right? 
All right, Philemon, uh, he appealed to you, and yeah, we know how it ends. All right, let's just get past this. This is super awkward, right? Beyond the fact that at the end of the day, when this is read, this is understood, alongside the letter to the Colossian church, there is an expectation that Philemon would respond well. And he does. We know he does in part because this letter's canonized and didn't burn it, all right? We know it in part also because he stands out as an example in the Colossian church beyond the writing of this letter. He continues to be one that refreshes the hearts of the saints. And so ultimately the Lord works in his heart and in his mind and in his will to push him toward Onesimus and say, He is my brother. And because he does that, Onesimus becomes the pastor of the church in Ephesus and is ultimately martyred for his faith. You see, you and I, in forced, intense moments, we only see a little bit of what the Lord is doing or purposes to do in the future, but I guarantee you we know this. We know that the affirmation and challenge he calls us to bring and the way that Paul has done to Philemon, that is a manner in which we are to long for one another to persevere in hope in Jesus, to make it to the finish line and rejoice in him. And this letter is Paul's plea. And as the band comes, I, I'm going to remind you what it says at the end. I read it at the outset. I think that Paul's closing words is the other thing we don't read. He says grace and peace and some grace and graciousness stuff, right? That, that's kind of how we treat his epistles. But he very particularly addresses his closing to the situation in these letters. So what does he say as his parting line when he's offered this appeal to Philemon? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He, he knows this is hard to read. <laughs> he knows it's going to be hard to have the whole congregation kind of look at him like, what, what's your next move, Philemon? Is it toward the cross and the gospel? This letter has led many to say we need to be reminded of the picture that it paints between Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus was enslaved, but he has become a brother. You have to respond to him as a brother. Do it with joy. And you have the power to receive him as a brother. So Martin Luther has said, you know what? We're all a bunch of Onesimi. That's what he says. And Jesus is a joyful Philemon who has received us as brothers, because we're not slaves of sin any longer, but slaves to righteousness. So I'm going to pray that grace and peace will be with our spirit, as the Lord calls us to be for one another in our friendships, in our brotherhood, sisterhood toward each other. God, we do thank you that we are dependent on your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your work in the gospel that we might hope in Jesus. We pray you continue to work among us and in us to affirm and recognize and celebrate your grace and God to challenge one another to pursue Christ by the work of the Spirit. Uh, we thank you that you are faithful to the end. God, we desire to be faithful in following you by your work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.